Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. I remember visiting New York when I was 18 and thinking about coming here for college, how badly I wanted to be from New York, how cool, how real, how substantial that would be. What does it mean to be from any place? At what point do you own the culture like you own your native language? your very own little shard of the broken mirror that adds up to New York, or Irkutsk, or Tehran. Actually, you can't own a culture, it owns you. And you can't immerse yourself in a different culture without turning into a different person. My guest today, investigative reporter Delphine Minoui, grew up in a relatively orderly, secular France. She wanted to know what it meant to be from Iran, her grandfather's country, under the veil of the Islamic Republic. Over a decade living there, she found out. Her book, I'm Writing You from Tehran, is the story of that investigation and how it changed her. Welcome to Think Again, Delphine. Thank you so much. The book is written as a letter to your grandfather, and you did originally, at least as you say it in the book, you went to Tehran to to try to find, to try to reclaim that piece of yourself and your family history and so on. What did you find and how was it different from what you were looking for? Definitely, when I decided to move to Iran was the idea of to reconnect with uh, the half part of my identity, the hidden part actually of my identity, because I grew up in a very French environment. I went to school in France. All my friends were French. Uh, My mom is French. My dad, who was Iranian, moved to France when he was 11 years old. Okay. And he never felt the need to teach me Farsi or to teach me about his culture. He was actually even traumatized by what happened to his country uh, because in 1979, the revolution happened and uh, the clergyman took over. So he kind of erased Iran from, from his brain. His name was Homayun with a H. And he even changed his name into a French name, Henry. Mm. So the only thing he kept was the H. (laughs) When I moved to Iran, after my grandfather died, actually first his death was sort of a wake-up call for me. It was like a part of myself disappearing and I wanted to get to know what was behind. You felt very close to him. How much time had you spent in person with with him? Actually, I didn't know him that well, Uh. that much, because he was living in Iran. I was living in France. When I was a kid, uh, the revolution happened. I was four years old. Then the Iran-Iraq war started, and it lasts for eight years. And along all these years, my grandparents couldn't leave Iran. And I, of course, obviously couldn't go there. But I remember as a kid, I was always wondering, who are my grandparents? What is this country which is like facing daily bombs from Iraq, from the neighboring country? And I remember as a kid, I was regularly writing them letters, always wondering if they would even receive them or if they would have the possibility to to reply to me. And then years and years later, my grandfather got sick. He needed to have a heart surgery. It was in 97. So he came to France. But the doctor told us that it was too late to proceed uh, into a surgery. So I realized that my my grandfather was about to to live soon. That's how it all started, actually. I felt the need or the urge to get to know him, this kind of invisible grandfather Mm. who was all of a sudden in front of me. So I spent days and nights uh, by his bed hospital. And actually, he's the first one who introduced me to the Persian culture. He's the first one who started teaching me Farsi from right to left. 
He's the first one who introduced me to the beautiful Persian culture through a poem of Hafez. Hafez. And then he passed away. But when he passed away, I read the poem again. And the poem had a special meaning. You know, in Persian poetry, you always read through the lines. And the meaning was about not to be scared of uh, riding the wave or going beyond the wave and uh, not being scared of the unknown. So I kind of read it as a message. Grandfather had left, but here I was living in France, curious about who was my grandfather, what was his culture, curious about this poem. And I decided to go to Iran. So I went to a travel agency and I took a plane ticket and I took it for 10 days. But eventually I stayed for 10 years. You know, I can think about a time when I was maybe in my 20s where family identity and history became very, very important, right? Because it's an age where you're trying to figure out who you are, right? And so you go to investigate these things in a way to find yourself, right? But when you immerse yourself in a culture like you did, like in Iran for 10 years, you end up finding something much, much bigger and more complicated than yourself, Definitely. I mean, uh, as soon as I arrived in Iran, I was totally lost in translation, first of all. (laughs) I couldn't speak the language. I didn't know the daily codes. I had to adapt to everything from the way I would dress up because I had to get used of the mandatory scarf, the hijab. Right. You know, in France, we have this culture, we kiss everyone. <laughs> mm. uh, we, we don't hug, we kiss. Right. Uh, even people we don't know when we meet them for the first time. But in Iran, not only you cannot kiss people, but you cannot even shake hands. And yet, and what's interesting is that I know there was some conflict, some cultural tension with your grandmother, where her sense was that your French acculturation makes you in some ways made you feel distant and cold compared to, you know, what she knew from her own culture. So Indeed, indeed. Uh, It's another paradox of Iran. I mean, uh, (laughs) first of all, I discovered this schizophrenic life where in the street, indeed, you're not allowed to kiss, you're not allowed to shake hands, you you don't uh, look at men directly in the eyes. But once you enter the inside sphere, when you enter the houses of people, then you get rid of everything, the scarf, etc., the shoes, and, and then people are very warm. It's the very Middle East culture. Yeah. You, you hug, you, you always improvise dinners, you end up like finishing dancing with 10 people or uh, singing songs, uh, reading poetry. And um, so my grandmother, I, actually, I got to know her. I didn't really know her very well when I arrived. Mm. And she used indeed at the very beginning, she used to blame me for being too cold. She used to say, you have a stone insi- instead of your heart. It was a clash of culture because I mean, in France, in the West in general, we are much more individualistic. Right. We are much more self-centered. Right. We are less uh, inclined to take care of the eldest. And for her, it, it was a matter of values. How come my granddaughter, she's coming to Iran, she's going to stay with me, but she won't have meals every day with me. She won't have lunch, <laughs> dinner, breakfast. She won't tell me uh, where she goes when she gets out of the, the house. And me, of course, at that at that time, I was... Uh, How old were you? At I, the... I was uh, 22, 23. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was starting my career as a journalist. <laughs> demonstrations, students' demonstrations were starting up inside the in the streets of Tehran, first thing I wanted to do was mm-hmm. to go and follow these demonstrations. And she was right. trying on the opposite to lock me up in the house and preventing me from going outside. Not only your age, but your whole career, what brought you to Iran in the first place depended on that kind of independence and that kind of adventurous spirit. Yes, and I, I was so <laughs> curious. I was thirsty for 
for everything. And I always had this question in my mind. What if I was in the shoes of those young people that I was going to meet? I could have been one of them. At the end of the day, my dad was Iranian. And when I was a little kid, my parents even considered moving back to Iran and, and living in Iran. Right. And to me, it was so fascinating to realize that we, we were so close, but so different in the same time. I was raised in France with living a on a daily basis with the notion of democracy, right. freedom. I never challenged those ideas. But very quickly, I realized that the young people of my age in Iran, actually their whole life, their whole daily life was devoted to this struggle for democracy, this fight for more freedom, for, for more equality between men and women. And that was really striking to me. I was realizing that Anything, actually, anything was political mm. from the color of the lipstick a girl would put up on her lips right. to the way she would put her scarf on her head, hair outside a little bit. It mm. would already be something very provocative, like a, a transgression. Even choosing the name of your newborn is kind of a political statement. If you choose a name like uh, Fatma or Zahra, much more oriented towards the religion, like right. Islamic name, it would mean that you're much more pro-Islamic Republic, pro-authorities. But if you choose a name like Azadeh, Azadeh means freedom. Sure. Or if you choose a name like Cyrus, Darius, like name of the, the previous kings of Iran. Right. Or if you even pick up a name like Ardeshir, coming from a, a beautiful book by an old writer, Firdusi, it would be your way of opposing the system mm. because it's a, such a rigid system with a lot of restrictions that you cannot go to the street and directly ch challenge it gotcha. but you can do it in your own subtle way and that's what i learned with these young people how they grew up under a very limited system mm. limited framework but how from their early years they learned how to navigate around the obstacles they are facing Here, it would be good for us to assume that not every listener, but many listeners don't know the history. And maybe we just outlined some of the big mm -hmm. points here. So what the revolution was about initially, how it ended up, and then the Iran that you found when you went there. So the revolution happened in 1979, and it was definitely an aim to get rid of the, the monarchy, of right. the Shah in the sense that people were deprived from uh, a lot of freedom, political freedom. There was a big gap also in the society. You had like the very yeah. rich and the very poor. Right. Back then, the Shah was seen as a sort of tool of the West, a tool of the US. Okay. So people felt their own identity was stolen. Historically, was the Shah, what role, if any, did the US play in installing the Shah or supporting the Shah. So what happened is uh, if we go back a little bit, just like a turning point that, that I think is uh, relevant in, in the history of relationship between Iran and the US, like in 1953, right. there was a coup d'etat staged by uh, the US and, and Great Britain against the prime minister at that time, uh, Mossadegh, who was much more nationalistic, who wanted to take distance with the West. And so through this coup d'etat, he got pushed away And it helped the Shah to regain his power and strengthen his power on the society. So definitely there was a trauma. 
among intellectuals mm. after after that time, which slowly kind of led to 1979 revolution later on. But what happened is when, when the revolution happened, everybody went to the streets, communists, secular people, religious people. But at the end of the day, only one segment of all these people took over power. And these were the clerics. Right. And Ayatollah Khomeini back then, who was living in exile in France, in Neuf-le-Château, jumped on a flight, came back to Iran, and declared himself the supreme leader of Iran. And, and there uh, were people who thought of him at the time as sort of a poetic spiritual presence rather than the signal of, of essentially a Islamic police state. Definitely. Right? There was a very romantic approach uh, related to Ayatollah Khomeini. Even in France, you know, uh, a great intellectual and philosopher like Michel Foucault ah. praised Khomeini. He <laughs> really? wrote letters about him. He wrote articles in the French newspapers. It's very really? interesting to read them right now because back then, if you go through these articles, it feels like Khomeini was a Mahatma Gandhi of uh, Iran. Uh. But slowly, slowly, he turned himself into a tyrant. He turned himself into someone who imposed religion over politics. He imposed restrictions on, on women. He imposed the, the Sharia, the Islamic law. So right. all of a sudden, women, like a woman is only half of a man in terms of the law. He imposed the mandatory scarf. And slowly, slowly, he got rid of these other segments who didn't want the Shah neither. So a lot of uh, opponents were put in jail. There were a lot of assassinations. Mm. And day by day, Ayatollah Khamenei, uh, Khomeini sorry, strengthened his power on the society. And then very quickly, Saddam Hussein decided to launch the war with right. Iran in 1980. And... Actually, these eight years of war, more than anything, helped the regime to strengthen its power because in the name of a foreign enemy, it allowed the, the power to crack down on the so-called inside domestic enemy. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky enough, when, when I moved to Iran in uh, 1997, I witnessed the first opening of the country. Okay. Because back then, at that time, for the first time, a reformist president was elected. Muhammad Khatami. He was an open-minded cleric. He was really into lifting the pressure on the society, reducing the censorship. It was, I will always remember that time, it, it was really the spring of Tehran. Mm. Everything was booming. Uh, you would go to, to the theater and you would attend uh, theater plays like translation of like French writers like the rhinoceros of uh, UNESCO or yeah. the black of uh, the blacks of Jean Genet like very transgressive theater plays that would be performed for the first time after the revolution in Iran you would see a boom of even factory unions women NGOs students associations reorgan reorganizing inside the universities a boom in in the media so many new newspapers were coming out so that was like a time of opening, even in terms of the relationship with the West. It was something big back then, I remember. Mm. The first interview of Mohammad Khatami, the Iranian president, on CNN, on an American TV. Right. It was really something because it was the first time after the trauma of the American hostage crisis after the revolution in, in Iran. You had all these signs of opening. It was like 
It was happening everywhere. You know, these tensions in the society, they remain always, in a sense, like seeds that are ready to blossom. In that situation, when you arrived there, you saw a cultural opening. But, you know, of course, in some ways, the country had been open in the past before. Then it had ushered in a revolution, which then ushered in a closing. And then after you were there, you saw another closing. So what's interesting is, and, and I was always asking this question to the Iranians when I was meeting them, when I moved to Iran, I was asking them, at the end of the day, was the revolution worth it? The religious people took over. And you know, they always used to have the same answer. It was worth it because huh. it broke the wall of fear because under the Shah, okay, there was a freedom of, uh, let's say, okay, women could wear mini skirts in the streets, right. but there was no political freedom. Hmm. So what happened after the revolution is new restrictions happened, like religious restrictions. Right. But people taste, they tasted the flavor of freedom when they went to the right. streets in 1979. So they used to tell me, and they still tell me now, no one can take this away from them. Hmm. Whatever oppressive, uh, repressive the system can be even now, this freedom is in people's minds, in people's hearts. So they know that, okay, if you close the door to them, they will always try to find a way to enter from the, the tiny window. So there's a couple things going on. I mean, there's the, as you said, the sort of little subversive ways in everyday life that people take their own freedom um, and this kind of strong contrast in the Islamic Republic in the more repressive times between the outside and the inside, how people behave out of doors and how they behave behind closed doors. And then you have also the spirit and the open acts of rebellion that happened during your time there, like when Ahmadinejad tries to steal the election and people pour into the streets and it's protests for how many days? That was amazing. It lasts yeah, yeah. for weeks and weeks. It was a real, real crack, I would say, in the system. I witnessed the previous one, which was in uh, 1999, okay. the students uprising, mm -hmm. when for the first time I heard someone in the street not only challenging what was happening to them, but also directly challenging the supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei. Mm. When you challenge him, when you dare insulting him, you can be sentenced to death. And then because of the crackdown, people went back home and the movement was kind of oppressed. Mm. But then, you know, as, as a, one of my Iranian friends always pointed out, you know, it's like a glass, a broken glass. Right. You try to glue back the pieces together, but it can crack again at any time. Mm. And that's what happened in 2009. 2009, people were so upset. They were so upset in the sense that they really felt their vote was stolen. So they wanted to dispute this victory of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad being re-elected as, right. as, a, as a president. So people went to the streets. What was amazing, for the first time in my life, I saw everyone in the streets. You had people from the posh uh, upper Tehran, northern Tehran, up to the popular section of the south of Tehran. You had intellectuals, you had factory workers, you had mm. women, men, you had uh, grandfathers leaving their house with their pajamas, you had <laughs> babies on the shoulders. Everybody, everybody was in the streets just for one reason. They were like, just give us back our vote. 
what is it that you think gave them, you know, aside from the historical experience of revolution in the past, or maybe that's it, that gave them the courage to do that? I mean, th there's that militia. The Basijis. The Basijis, yeah. There's like this massive organization of like thugs who come and beat people up, basically, who are in support of the Islamic Republic. And so what gave people the courage to come out en masse like that in spite of that threat? I think more than anything, they felt betrayed by the system. Because among those people in the streets in 2009, you also had a lot of people who were supporting the system. This system is very, it's a very strange system. It's not a dictatorship like, like a typical dictatorship mm. you would see in the Iraq of Saddam Hussein or Libya of Gaddafi. It's neither a democracy. It's kind of in between. I would say it's sort of like a, an authoritarian uh, theocracy, which allows, I mean, you have a supreme leader who is the big boss in Iran, but it still gives space for elections. Uh -huh. Because in Iran, you go and you vote. You vote for the parliament, you vote for the local elections, and you vote for the president. So it gives you a space of choice, even if the candidates are pre-selected, it still allows a possibility of choosing someone who's not the worst, let's say. Mm. So that's what happened in 1997 when Khatami got elected. Right. Yes, he was part of the system. Yes, he would never challenge the supreme leader, but he was someone who wanted to open up, support a, a reform inside the system. But what happened in 2009 is that people were like, wait a minute, so you gave us this right to yeah. vote. Okay, we went to vote, we went to the polling stations, but you're stealing our vote. You're making Mahmoud Ahmadinejad the winner, while we think, that's what they used to say, we think it's his uh, main rival, Mirosan Mousavi, who is the winner. They felt betrayed. They were like, okay, we supported a system for so many years, but you're stealing our vote. So what's even the point of letting us go and vote in this case? So it's like, it's like the straw that breaks the camel's back, because I mean, you're living in a situation where in a sense, you have been betrayed. You are betrayed by the revolution when it turns into a theocracy. You have to many people, not everyone, but many people have to live double lives. That is, in a sense, a betrayal in your everyday existence. But then there's these like flashpoints, I guess, a exactly. flashpoint like and this. And you know, because of the restrictions, that's what I, I noticed in Iran. Any single opportunity to express mm -hmm. yourself, you're going to seize it. So even the fact of going to vote is sort of an act of resistance because mm. you're not specifically going to vote for someone, but you're going to vote against someone. That brings us to the very interesting story of that relationship that you got into with a Basiji couple, right? And how the wife and the husband kind of move apart. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. That's very, very interesting. To me, they are the most interesting people at the end I met in Iran because they are the most different from me. They were from a totally different background, very religious, very nationalistic. Even the way we met is so strange <laughs> right, right, because right. <laughs> <laughs> that day I was in the mountains. You know, in Iran, there's a lot of pollution. Mm. So what do you do every Friday, which is the day off? You go and you go hiking in the mountains. So I was hiking in the mountains with uh, some friends. Actually, I was uh, working with a documentary film crew back then. Right. And uh, 
a guy called us up and say, hey, what are you doing? Girls and boys together. This is not uh, acceptable. Not wearing hijabs. And, and and some hij yes, yeah. the hijabs were falling on the shoulders. <laughs> and so he stopped us. He asked for our identity cards. And uh, he was very rude. And he was like threatening us to, to arrest us. Eventually, we managed to cool him down and it went okay. But weeks later, as I was visiting an exhibition about Iran-Iraq war, I hear my name and I look back and here it is, the same guy, the same Basiji who tried to arrest me a few weeks before. <laughs> and we kind of became friends and started talking and uh, and then later on he invited me to his house to introduce me to his fiancé back then. And so that's how I got to know them. But back then I will always remember the fiancé was very discreet, very, uh, she wouldn't talk too much. She was obviously under the shade of her husband sure. and all they would talk about was about how fantastic the Islamic Republic is, how important it is for women to have so many kids, uh, all these family values, religious values, uh, conservative values. There is uh, an obsession with martyrs as well from also, the Iran, yes, the because, War. Also, uh, yes, because there's really a as I call it in French, a martyrology, like mm. a fascination for the martyrs of Iran-Iraq war. And so the Basiji guy, his whole dream is in life was to be able to at one day go at war in a country, an enemy country of, of Iran. And right. he, he always wished he was old enough back then to be able to go and fight on the Iran-Iraq uh, front. And so, die, probably. And die, yeah. exactly, because he knew that, I mean, f according to him, he would go to paradise, and, and that was his goal. And slowly, slowly, years after years, we kept in touch. And uh, we set up this kind of ritual to sometimes go uh, hiking in the mountains together. Right. The same mountains when he bothered <laughs> me. And um, as he would be more and more a strong supporter of the system, I saw her changing along the years. She started uh, getting rid of her black chador, the chador, this big right. fabric you put all over your body, choosing a, a colorful scarf and a colorful jacket. Then there was a turning point in her private life as well. Her sister got divorced. To her was the first time she was challenged as a woman. She realized how Iranian women are deprived from so many rights mm. because her sister had to start fighting for the, the custody of her children. It made her realize that women in Iran are suffering from a lot of things. For instance, when she got married herself, she stopped school. But then she started realizing, hmm, I would love to go back to the university. So she started studying uh, business administration. She started studying law. And right. by entering university, it opened her, her sphere of thinking. And she changed a lot. She used to ask me so many questions. How do we live in the West? She was asking me book references. She bought uh, a satellite dish on the black market. Right. Because in Iran, the satellite dish is, the satellite is forbidden. And as she started watching uh, movies, video clips, she started changing even more and more. And so when 2009 happened, what we used to call the green wave, when all these mm. people went to the streets, she went to the streets 
with the demonstrators to challenge the regime. That was something for me. I was like, <laughs> is it the same girl I met years ago wearing this black chador, not even talking? And she's still married to him at the time. And he's across the street protesting. And he was well. across the yeah. street in the same time. Yeah. But he was among the guys who were cracking down not on those demonstrators. Yeah, cracking down, exactly. Uh, the guys who were killing the protesters, the guy who was ar were arresting them. And to me, it was like, wow, you know? Because, you know, in the West, we have this image of uh, everything is the same. Right. Like, okay, we call the, the Basijis or the bad guys, and that's it. And they are the ones who are cracking down on the society, and, and we don't know much about them. But at the end of the day, they, there's also a war inside the group. Right. There's a battle right. between those who are much more leaning toward a hardline position. There are some of those also who are questioning themselves, questioning the values of the Islamic Republic, yeah. wondering if they shouldn't start opening up more to the young people, wondering if it's not maybe too outdated now to go and crack down on the, the young people. Right. And through this couple was a way to understand a bit more the contradictions of the Iranian society, but also of this specific conservative group. It's fascinating. And you, you say one thing which in the book, which I think is really interesting, which kind of points to the moral complexity of this, which is there. So there's an actor that I guess you, you met early on. Ardeshir, is that his name? Is that Ardeshir, Ardeshir indeed. Yeah. Yes. So Ardeshir dies, unfortunately, is escaping. They're having a party. The sort of morality police come to the door and they, everyone's got always an escape route from the parties. Their escape route involves going to a tree, but he falls. And right when you're talking about what is the name of the Basiji woman? You're, Fateme. You're, Fateme. When you're talking about Fatima, you know, you're observing all these changes and all of these ways in which she opened up and questioned her reality and these tensions. But you also note, note that simply by remaining in that world that she was in, to the extent that she was in that world, she, she is in part part of the force that's responsible for things like Ardashir's Definitely. You know, and like, yeah. this struck me the day she invited me for a private party. It was a only women party, of course. So as soon as I entered the house, I noticed that everybody had gotten rid of their scarves because it was between right. women. And on the dance floor, they were, all of them were more sexy. Right. Uh, I mean, it was like a contest of, uh, <laughs> of outfits. I looked so old fashioned with my long shirt and my <laughs> long pair of pants. And they started putting on music the Spice Girls. <laughs> right. It was the Spice Girls back then. <laughs> and they started dancing like crazy. And all of a sudden I was, I felt sometimes, you know, reality goes beyond fiction. Yeah. I was thinking, I feel like I'm in a movie. Those girls are dancing with American music, the music they are supposed to fight right, when right. they go and crack down on those young people. And then I was looking at them and I was thinking, oh my God, indeed, these are the same girls, the same Basiji girls, whose husband may be the ones who entered the house of Ardeshir and kind of killed him. Yeah. And it tells a lot about Iran. Yes, this whole, it's a daily schizophrenia. We are dealing with this in a very small way in America now with our current president and the people who voted him into office. And many people who consider themselves liberals of one kind or another who were totally shocked after the election and were like, 
how can a normal, decent human being take responsibility for what's about to happen? We're in that a similar conflict, trying to understand how real people who are our neighbors and who live complicated lives, how do we treat them as humans, but how do we also deal with our moral lines in the sand? Definitely. Yeah. And, and I, I can imagine how confusing it is. <laughs> It's very confusing. It's so confusing because uh, on the one hand, if you want to see it on a positive level, I guess whenever you face uh, restrictions or politically imposed limits, it forces you to be more creative mm. in the sense of resisting, transgressing the, the rules. And I think I can see it in the US. Mm. There's a lot going on in, in the artistic scene movies or even demonstrations being organized. I remember watching on TV uh, women uh, being uh, dressed up like the Handmaid's Tale by uh, Margaret Hartwood in the sense that they want to protect women's rights. Right. And it shows the resilience, let's it, say, of the society. Yeah, yeah. It mm. pushes creativity. Mm -hmm. The creativity, it also, I guess, reminds people what their freedom means. Exactly. And, and some, some values, again, that I think in the West, we, we never really challenged before because we grew up with it, right? right. It was part of our DNA. Mm. Uh, but all of a sudden, we are all realizing there's a threat out there, even in Europe, right. by the way. Right. And we are realizing how those values are so important and we are still started working on them. What does freedom means? What does democracy means? And also it, it's something that brings us to our own selves. Right. Indeed, the ones in front of us are not like us. They are trying to build walls mm. between them and us, or even at their borders, between the whole us and the other ones right. who have different colors, different religions, different values. And I think it pushes all of us who, who are more towards defending freedom and democracy to be actually more into designing new bridges to try to go around those mm. walls. Mm. So all of a sudden you have this new community of people teaming up together. It creates a new sphere. It's kind of an unknown sphere. Let's see what's what's going to happen from, from it. Right. But uh, it's a creative energy. Like a, I think at the end of the day, way. yes. And uh, history repeats itself. And I think it's also time to reopen books and right. read about the rise of totalitarianism uh, in Europe in 30s, 40s, uh, what happened during uh, Mussolini time, what happened during Hitler time, sure. because it's out there. The danger is out there. And before it comes to us, we, we should rethink about it. We have a very hard time, I think, in the West looking at and thinking about Iran. I mean, I, I grew up, you know, when I grew up in America, my childhood in my household, Ayatollah Khomeini was, you know, like a villain, like a cartoon, this Middle Ages madman yelling about America, which, you know, maybe there's was. some truth to that. Which yes, he was, yes, yes, definitely. Yes. Right, right. But the challenge is, though, like when we look at a society like that, We want to out, outwardly condemn the things that seem worth condemning, that we look at and we say, okay, that's ridiculous, women are being mistreated, but we're not, we're not actually seeing the thing from the inside. And so it's also, so then we get a backlash in the conversation where people say, well, you don't actually know what you're talking about. You don't know what the hijab means to women. You don't know what the you know, chador means to women. It becomes very confusing. I, I think in France, the police removing burkinis on the beach and so on. It's very confusing how to deal it, with it. It is. Group. And actually, 
that's also the reason why <laughs> I decided to base myself in Iran for so long. Right. To feel it, to live it myself. Yeah. My dad was the first one to tell me, don't go to Iran. This guy is crazy, Ayatollah Khamenei. He opposed my choice right. to go to Iran. But I wanted to actually go and take a look at what's behind the veils. Mm. Okay, it looks like a very black country from outside, like a, a huge chador is going over everything. Right. Tehran, Iran, the country. But what I learned when I was back there on the ground in Iran was that on the one hand, yes, you have a scary power, scary government, scary headlines in the media. But then you have a, an amazing society, a society that we don't talk about enough. And the society is so different from uh, its government. Sure. You have a very educated society. Women are deprived from many rights, indeed. But imagine, do you know that in the universities, you have more female students than male students. You have a very young society. Mm. More than half of the society is under the age of 30 years old. And that's that's the Iran I discovered. That's the Iran also I wanted to talk about in my in my book. This is a country where you can be arrested for an article you write. Right. But then ironically, as soon as you're free from jail, you're even more, much more resilient and you would write 1000 articles the same way. Mm -hmm. Something that struck me when, when I was in Iran as well, uh, uh, so many people I, I knew uh, ended up in jail, but as they were in jail, they were writing books. Mm. And, you know, the most famous uh, prison in Iran is called Evin. Right. And they had a joke between themselves. They used to call it, instead of Evin prison, they, they would call it Evin University. <laughs> right. Because all these dissidents who were always so busy, as soon as they ended up in jail for a few years, finally they had time to learn languages, write books. And ironically, their books would be published and distributed in some in some bookstores really? while they were still behind bars. Really? That I mean that's astonishing. Like it's why part would of that one of those be allowed? Crazy yeah. paradox of, of Iran. You know, I mean that's very the Iranian system is a system which is a lot about controlling. But there's always always a margin of tolerance. As long as according to the leaders, it doesn't create too huge of a mobilization. So they would think if one of these dissidents is writing a book, okay, maybe a few hundred people are going to read this mm. book. So it's okay. Let people read the book and let them feel a little bit of kind of freedom. A, a method of control in a way, leaving a little bit of breathing room. That, that's why in, in, yeah. in my book also I always refer to, to those waves. Iran is a country mm. of waves. It goes up, it goes down. There's always a period of crackdown, but after a while, there's always a period of like opening up. Even you had this relationship with this relationship, I think we can call it with this secret service guy. I used to call him Mr. Fingers because he was yeah, missing, two right, fingers. missing two fingers. And, you know, he's playing a strange kind of torturer's game of cat and mouse, just kind of bringing you in periodically for a conversation. How many times did you meet? Over 10 years, yes, we, we met, uh, I guess, like more than 10, 20 times yeah. with him or with his colleagues. 
And uh, it was very scary at the beginning because he was calling me up and summoning me to ask me questions and challenging my articles and making it obvious that he knew everything about me, including private conversations mm. with my grandmother. So it goes back to a system who is really eager to control people, to intimidate them, but not systematically to put them in jail. Again, I think of the torturer. There's a strange intimacy about it, you know, like we know you, there's a relationship there, there's a kind of, okay, we know what you're doing. If you're a little free, you're free because we are letting you be free for now. Definitely. And they also play during the interrogation, the good cop, the bad cop. There is this feeling that, yes, first they they try to, to control you, to scare you, when they see that it doesn't work perfectly because yourself, you, you become stronger, you right, get right. used to it, you, you learn how to live with fear. Then somehow they try to buy you or co-opt you somehow. Right. They started like this kind of blackmailing with me, telling me that if you want to get back your press credentials, maybe you could uh, help us out giving us information of, on that dissident or this dissident. And as soon as you refuse, then they consider you as a real enemy then they start really cracking down on you and threatening you to put you in jail or arresting you, etc. So it's a weird game. It's a scary game, but it's the game where you are still a little bit, let's say, allowed to go around, go around the the obstacles and, and the pressure. So Delphine, now is the time when we're going to watch a surprise video that is on an idea that connects in some way with your book and see where the conversation goes from there. Okay. (laughs) So this is Robert Sapolsky. He is a neuroscientist, and this is very interesting. The title is Atheism Versus Religion, Which is the Healthier Viewpoint? So when you look at the really unique, bizarre things humans have come up with, ranging from cave paintings to Snapchats and everything in between, probably the most unique and universal thing we've come up with is this religion business. When you talk about symbolic metaphorical thinking, um, essentially there has been no culture on earth that has not invented some form of what could be termed metamagical thinking, attributing things that cannot be seen, faith-based belief systems, things of that sort. It's universal. Uh, 90, 95% of people believe in some sort of omnipotent something or other out there. Every culture out there has it. People have endlessly speculated about the evolution of religiosity. And at least in terms of westernized religions, um, it makes perfect sense why they've evolved. Because they're wonderful mechanisms for reducing stress. It is an awful, terrifying world out there where bad things happen and we're all going to die eventually. And believing that there is something, someone responsible for it, at least gives some stress-reducing attributes built around understanding causality. If on top of that, you believe there is not only something out there responsible for all of this, but that there is a larger purpose to it, that's another level of stress-reducing explanation. If then on top of it, you believe that individual out there is benevolent, even more so, control and predictability. Benevolent and listens to human entreaties, more elements of control. 
benevolent, listens to human entreaties, and prefers to listen to people like you, who look like you, pray like you, request like you, even more so there, just all these levels of controlled predictability, they're stress reducing. And what is infuriating to me as an utter complete atheist is a very, very solid literature showing the health benefits of religiosity, independent of you tend to get a social supportive community when you're religious, you have fewer lifestyle risk factors. The mere ability to perceive causality, reason, benevolence, benevolence especially for people like me, if I say the right, com right combination of words and fervently believe in it, that's wonderfully protective and there's health benefits to it. If it is a totally heartless, indifferent, apathetic universe out there, you are far more at risk for all the logical things, which is to conclude it is an utterly depressing universe out there. Rates of depression are much higher among atheists, go figure. So in terms of that, it makes perfect sense why this is something that people have come up with. And rather than asking why is it that 95% of humans come up with some form of religiosity, much more biologically interesting question to me is what's up with the 5% of atheists who don't do that? We can start anywhere with this. Do you have That's something That's very interesting. You actually, you reminded me of my dad. Oh, really? <laughs> because uh, <laughs> actually, I was uh, I was raised in a very uh, kind of atheist uh, family. My mom uh, has a Catholic background, right? And uh, she had to go to the church like when she was a kid, and she mm. went to the religious French schools. And uh, I think the first man she met was was my dad actually. And right. my dad was from this. Uh, Muslim Shia background, but not really raised with uh, with religion. And yes, my, my parents always used to, to tell us at home, to me and my sister, why should we bother with religion? Indeed, sometimes religion is used just to, to feel better or to give a framework, as this guy says, right. or it's used to control people. So my parents always told us, it's up to you. One day, maybe you will choose. You'll choose if you want to be religious or not. You'll choose your own religion. But it, had it has to come from yourself, right. from uh, your own choice. And as we see these days, uh, often, sadly, religions are instrumentalized. Uh, as a reporter covering the Middle East, I, I followed up the rise of Daesh, ISIS. Oh, okay, right. And how, how in the name of Islam, they allowed themselves to behead people on on the public square, they allowed themselves to rape Yazidi women because they were not from the same religious community. Right. And this is just horrible. It's even if you don't look at it from an atheist point of view, it's a, it's an insult to religion and it's an insult to people who are believers. Yeah, it was occurring to me recently. I was thinking about sometimes atheist, secular humanists will make the argument that religion should be eradicated from humanity because it has done nothing but bad for us historically. Look, at, you know, it's used as an instrument of control and so on. And it occurred to me not long ago that, well, in fact, everything can be used, every idea can be used as an instrument of control. Religion might be a little better at justifying completely irrational behaviors and sort of enshrining them in law, using the symbology of religion and the sort of authority of priests and God and so forth may make it easier to justify mm -hmm. completely crazy behaviors. If you look at the 20th century history as well, it's like at one point, Islamism took over or seized the vacuum that was left from uh, 
previous communism left from right. the ex-USSR. So it's always about, I agree with you, it's about religion being used as an ideology. But at the end of the day, I mean, religion has beautiful things. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I always respect people who, who have beliefs. And also it's, for many people, it's a way to always feel about trying to become a better person. Although you can also be a better person without religion, <laughs> right? right? right, 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 right. Uh, it's, it's all about the, the values you want to have and to, to share. And it's always about also your choice. It's like the problem these days mm. is religion is being imposed by above. above. Yeah. That's why sometimes I like to quote uh, the Sufi poet uh, Rumi, Molana, mm. uh, because that's what is beautiful about Sufism is uh, it's your inner belief, what you feel from inside you and what connects you either with some God or with the others or with something you praise, like dance for Rumi, for instance, love. Uh, empathy. Yeah, we have these movements in every religion, you know, sometimes mystical movements like Sufism in Islam and Kabbalah in Judaism and Gnosticism in Christianity, and sometimes just simple reform movements that are like Protestantism in its origin, Lutheranism, to go against the power structures of religion and try to reclaim what you're saying, those, you know, the values, the things about religion, the ideas within religion that might actually unite people or make their lives better. That's what was fascinating for me when I was in Iran. I, I used to go often to the holy city of Qom. Mm. What was fascinating was to spend hours and hours talking with those reformist clerics. Right. To talk with them about the real values of uh, religion, of politics, and, and many of them actually were advocating a separation between mm. politics and religion in the name of actually preserving religion and not turning religion in a, into a tool. And that was so interesting to talk to them because they, they were the ones also who were debating about whether it should be allowed or not to drink alcohol ah. while the Islamic Republic was willing to ban alcohol. Right. They were talking about uh, the mandatory scarf, questioning... Uh, this piece of clothes that you have to put on your head. Mm. And some of them were saying, why should we force women to wear something on their heads? Do we have to wear something on our head? No. So why should we impose it on the others? Going back to what you were saying about Iran, that, that's, that's one of the most interesting things that, that will stay with me from this conversation. The idea that, that the way that country is built and the way that it functions, its systems leave room for dialogue to happen in the form of elections, in the form of consciously or unconsciously, no matter how hard people are holding on to power, there is this space, this public space. There's always dialogue. There is always space for change, even mm. within the system. The conservatives of, the, of yesterday are becoming the reformists of today. So let's see what will happen to them tomorrow. Despite the pressure, there's always a bit of space of dialogue between the government and the society. Some people may argue that it's actually vicious from the system. It's in order to keep the system, to avoid a regime change uh, by accepting certain reforms, by accepting certain demands. But at the end of the day, if it avoids having rivers of blood, like we are witnessing in Syria, with a definitely horrible tyrant killing his own society. I mean, we have like, what, hundreds, hundreds of thousands, thousands. of people being killed since... Uh, since the uprising of 2011. Mm. Uh, so there's no secret perfect recipe. 
But at the end of the day, today, I think that's what uh, Iranian people learned from their own experience, from the experience in the region. We are in a very volatile region these days, is that if you don't have an alternative, the right alternative to change the system, hmm. if you want the alternative to come from inside and not being imposed by the outside under one decision made by Donald Trump with a tweet, then you have to work from within, you have to practice patience, and you have to try slowly, slowly for, with your own means to change things. And if you cannot change this system, you can at least try to change yourself, change your community, and try to, to move towards a better tomorrow. Delphine Minui, I think that's perfect. Thank you so much for coming on Think Again today. Thank you so much. And uh, Delphine's book is I'm Writing You from Tehran, and it's available now, everywhere. That's all for now, folks. If you like what you're hearing on Think Again, you can come join our Facebook group at Friends of Think Again, a Big Thing podcast. Uh, you can come find me on my website, jasongots.com, J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S.com. Uh, you can write me an email from there. You can join my mailing list. Um, I do not email frequently, so don't worry. And I will be back next week with something completely different. And I sincerely hope that you can join me.